0: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nolpothanchel. New Hampshire voters will head to the polls in under a month, eight days after the Iowa caucuses. These small states have kicked off presidential election years since the 1970s. But is the state-by-state primary system the best way to narrow the candidate field for the country's highest office? Coming up, we talk with Galen Druk, host and producer of 538's Politics podcast. Galen and his team have launched a fitting podcast series for the next few months called the primaries project. We learn more just ahead. First, the latest polls show four Democratic candidates are neck and neck in the lead up to New Hampshire's primary, February 11th. So what's happening on the ground there? Joining us from New Hampshire is Josh Rogers, senior political reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. Josh, welcome to the show.
1: Good morning. Glad to be here.
0: Our listeners can join, too, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Josh, you've been a politics reporter for some time. So uh, tell us, what is it like to be in New Hampshire before the primary? Uh, what's happening there?
1: Well, it's busy. Um, I was out this weekend, and um, a lot of candidates were in Iowa. But Michael Bennett, uh, Colorado Senator, and Andrew Yang were here. They pretty much had the state to themselves. And uh, I guess Elizabeth Warren is here for part of the weekend, too. But uh, you know, you get the sense that uh, you know now that we're a month out, voters are really uh, starting to pay more attention and starting to finalize uh, potentially their decisions. Uh, there, you know, still a bunch of time, and you know, new people in New Hampshire, you know, don't like to admit this often, but what happens in Iowa will have a huge effect on uh, their final decision making. But. You know, some some people who have gone and seen dozens of candidates and dozens of events told me yesterday that they're getting closer to making a decision. And, um, you know, we've got the same clump at the top of the polls here as are in Iowa, uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, and Pete Buttigieg. And then there are several candidates a little bit farther down in the polls, uh, Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, and, uh, you know, Andrew Yang, uh, who uh, also have some support here. So it will be interesting to see what happens. I mean, no one uh, who's sane would pretend to uh, – really know what's going to happen in the next month.
0: So let's talk about those latest polls. So who's leading in New Hampshire, depending on uh, which voter you're talking to?
1: Well, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, appears to be uh, leading at the moment. I mean, that's what the most recent polls are indicate. But, you know, the margins of error are, are uh, all such that uh, he couldn't actually be leading. And, um, you know, the uh, but he's running strong. He obviously won here in 2016. This was the first state Uh, He won uh, in what ended up being a longer Democratic primary process. Uh, You know, he got 60 percent of the vote last time. Most polls now show him at around 20 percent support. Uh, Today, he's being endorsed by the local chapter of the SEIU, which represents more than 10,000 state employees and some other workers. It's one of the more significant union endorsements a candidate can pick up in New Hampshire. That should help him. That same union endorsed him four years ago. Um, Elizabeth Warren has run strong in New Hampshire. And, you know, like Bernie Sanders, may enjoy some degree of advantage uh, from being in a neighboring state. I mean, obviously, both Sanders and Warren are national political figures. But traditionally, um, typically, uh, people from neighboring states tend to do well in the primary here. They've always pretty much come in first and second. Um, You know, Joe Biden, obviously, is uh, universal name recognition. And you know, have some support here. And Pete Buttigieg is also somebody whose message is appealing uh, to a lot of voters, including some independent voters. And also, um, you know, we have a lot of voters in New Hampshire, relatively sort of like high income, high educational attainment, and uh, he's appealing to those folks. And so, you know, it is really uh, hard to know where this is going right now. Um, you don't get the sense that um, a lot of people have made up their mind completely. And... Um, you know, it's going to be a busy month.
0: Uh, when we think about uh, some of the the New England candidates that you mentioned, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, what about Deval Patrick? He came into the race uh, fairly late. Is it uh, What do New Hampshire residents think of him?
1: Well, most people who are close to politics uh, would say they don't understand why he got in as late as he has. I mean, that's the first question he faces. And while... Uh, you know, he certainly was governor of Massachusetts uh, for two terms. He was not somebody who um, spent a lot of time cultivating the sort of relationships that politicians who hope one day to run for president typically do. Um, you know, it's hard to know. A-, a lot of people are saying, you know, had he gotten the race, uh, you know, eight months ago, a year ago, I might give him a serious look and find him credible. but. You know, right now they say they don't. Um, you know, he would say that, you know, he's been underestimated his whole life and he has a path. But, you know, as of last week, you know, we he's up with his first campaign ad and uh was still finalizing uh you know, rental space for a campaign office. And you know, we have candidates with dozens of employees uh working for for you know more than a year, um in some cases. And so, you know, I'm not finding too many people who uh who are taking him terribly seriously.
0: You also reported recently on how New Hampshire voters think of Joe Biden, as someone who's been part of the establishment for some time. Uh, not real excited about him, but they see him as something, uh, somebody that that would be a solid uh, leader.
1: Well, that's what the that's what the polling indicates, and that's mm-hmm. what my reporting indicates is that it can be a little uh, jarring, frankly, to talk to somebody who's like, "Oh, I really like Joe Biden." Um, I think he's a solid guy. I trust him, et cetera. And then all of a sudden veer into, but, you know, I'm here because I wonder whether he's too old and whether he's as sharp as he needs to be. And if he's not as sharp as he needs to be, like, I'm not going to be voting for him. So, you know, Joe Biden has some big advantages in terms of obviously name recognition. You know, it's worth remembering he has actually Uh, Run in the New Hampshire primary, though, in neither case did he actually make it to primary day, like back in the 80s. And then um, in 2008, uh, neither of those uh, campaigns did he really pick up all that much steam here. Obviously, his reputation was burnished uh, by being vice president. Um, There are a lot of people who think that he's the sanest choice, uh, given that uh, he's well-known and you can – on paper, make the case that he builds the strongest coalition and and maybe that will come to pass. Um, But you go to his events and it's not like they're electrifying and maybe they don't need to be electrifying. But he has, you know, he has the support of the State Firefighters Union, which is a big deal in some New Hampshire elections. Uh, He has, you know, but things could change. I mean, and if he comes out of Iowa with a bad result, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens in New Hampshire. But, you know, he's certainly in the mix to, to win this thing.
0: Josh Rogers is speaking with us from New Hampshire. He's senior political reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio, as uh, that state's primary is under a month from now. Uh, You can join our conversation. Coming up, we're going to talk about uh, how the primary system for the presidential election came to be uh, with 538's Galen Druk. Our number to join the conversation, 888-720-9677. Josh, I was wondering if you could talk uh, more about uh, just the demographics of New Hampshire. That's gotten a lot of attention this uh, presidential election season, Uh, New Hampshire like Iowa, uh, very uh, predominantly white states, um, maybe not demographically or we know not demographically rep- representative of the, the Democratic Party. And so I'm wondering how residents are feeling about that as that attention has been called uh, this time around.
1: Well, you know, this is not uh, a new uh, phenomenon. Uh, new Hampshire has, you know, it's certainly becoming more uh, ethnically diverse, racially diverse. Um, you know it's ninety five percent plus white uh it's a fairly rich state in terms of if you look at the uh if you look at the average income there's certainly uh pockets of uh, poverty in New Hampshire but it's a state that um, you know it's a very secular state it's a very white state it's a pretty well educated state um whether or not It truly represents the demographics of the country has been debated for some years. Uh, One thing that's interesting this year is that you actually had that argument coming out of the mouths of candidates. uh, Most pointedly, uh, former HUD Secretary Julian Castro said that essentially Iowa and New Hampshire shouldn't go first given that they don't represent the country demographically. And, you know, given the coalition that Democrats uh, are likely to need to build to uh, defeat President Trump— um, You know, that debate's taken on greater urgency. I mean, people here who are deeply invested in keeping the primary here would tell you that, you know, the first four states uh, are a good mix and represent the country. Um, you know, it is what it is. I mean, New Hampshire is certainly changing. Um, it's hard to make a case on the merits that New Hampshire is representative of the rest of the country, but, you know, institutionally, uh, the people who want to keep the primary here would say that New Hampshire gives candidates that don't have a lot of money a chance, and it also provides the face-to-face campaigning that uh, people hear and uh, like to believe is important. Whether or not, you know, if you look back to 2016, whether or not that sort of face-to-face traditional retail-style campaigning necessarily meant much in New Hampshire, you look at Bernie Sanders won and Donald Trump won, uh, both fueled by these, you know, kind of mega rallies. Um, It's interesting, you know, whether or not the model uh, and, you know, what we've been taught and what New Hampshire likes to propagate in terms of what is essential, what are are essential components of presidential campaigning, whether those are as relevant as they used to be. But, you know, the facts are the facts on the demographics. And it'll be interesting to see moving forward uh, what the implications of that are. I mean, it's been, you know, four cycles since there was really – uh, much uh, much of a challenge to New Hampshire's uh, role in the lineup. And that was resolved by, you know, creating the sort of four state, early states being of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada.
0: Uh, you speaking of uh, demographics in New Hampshire, uh, you have a whole bunch of new voters this time around. Uh, who are they leading towards, Josh?
1: Well, that's an interesting question and certainly won the campaigns. I mean, one thing that is interesting about New Hampshire, and this is not a totally new phenomenon, it's been going on for several election cycles, is that, you know, apparently New Hampshire is the sixth most... Churning state uh, demographically, uh, you know, we've got a lot of candidates. We've got a lot of people moving in. We've got some people aging out, and you know, New Hampshire is a very, very small percentage of its population who is actually native born, which does make sense given that the state is small and that um, you know our economy really feeds off of that of Massachusetts. So there's lots of immigration from Massachusetts traditionally, but there are people moving here from all over the place, and we have older people uh, retiring to some communities in the northern part of the state that are making some small towns a bit more liberal than they used to be. And, um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see you look at—we've been looking in, in our newsroom where campaigns are choosing to uh, send their candidates, and it's a bit more complicated this cycle because there have been, you know, 20-plus candidates uh, running at, at, at various points in this race Um you're going to get people sent to places where they normally might not fight for votes, such as, you know, Upper Carroll County, uh, some of the small towns up north. I mean, most of the population is south of uh, Concord, uh, clustered along the Massachusetts border, Hillsborough and Rockingham counties. Uh, you know, those uh, those areas, uh, the Massachusetts border is really, really where Republicans tend to rack up votes. Historically, uh, you have a lot of kind of born-again uh, New Hampshire people who uh, kind of move here to avoid the broad-based taxes of Massachusetts. Um, you know, vote, the campaigns are fighting for every vote they can. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see the young people are definitely the polling indicate that they're strongest with Bernie. Um, and then we have, uh, you know, the Democratic primary. A lot of the older voters are actually uh, drawn to Pete, Pete Buttigieg. So you have this kind of inversion of the old guy drawing the young support and the youngest guy uh, drawing the sort of the older support. A lot of old older voters I talked to You know, for them, uh, Pete Buttigieg is kind of like, you know, in some ways, an old person's idea of a young person. So uh, this is going to be interesting to watch. I'm
0: not sure he would uh, embrace that. (laughs) No, I don't think he would like that,
1: but I think it's true.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to thank Josh Rogers for joining us, senior political reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. A busy uh, month for you ahead, Josh. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Up next, when did American voters get the chance to select which presidential candidate was nominated by the national party? You might be surprised by the answer. We talk with FiveThirtyEight's Galen Druk about that question after the break. You can join us too 9677 That's 720 WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Primary season is almost here. Iowa starts things off with its caucuses February 3rd, followed by primaries in New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, before a Super Tuesday. And But Connecticut's primary isn't until the end of April. Ironically, it was a group of Connecticut activists in 1968 that helped launch a reform movement to change how parties nominated presidential candidates. 538's latest podcast series gets into that history. It's called... The Primaries Project. Host and producer of 538's Politics Podcast, Galen Druk joins me now with more. Uh, Galen, welcome back to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. So
0: we were just talking with uh, New Hampshire Public Radio about uh, its uh, primary. And again, a lot of attention and the start uh, with Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, these small states that have these early caucuses and primaries. Uh, but it's interesting uh, when we think about this system, it's not that many decades old. Tell us how the primary system came to be in the presidential race, I guess, beginning in 1968.
2: Yeah. So the system that we take for granted today only really began in the 70s. And it was the result of a raucous, essentially disastrous Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968. The Democratic Party was very divided over the war in Vietnam and also divided over the civil rights movement. And essentially, you had a situation where there was a anti-war camp within the Democratic Party and a more establishment camp that was backing Hubert Humphrey, the vice president at the time, who supported the war. And you got a bunch of activists who were upset that even if they had support in states like Connecticut, they wouldn't necessarily be able to get delegates to the National Convention. Because back then, there wasn't a one-for-one relationship between getting support in a primary and then getting delegates to go to the National Convention. In fact, there were only about a dozen primaries back then. So in large part, the Democratic Party was using caucuses and it was still kind of that machine era of politics where party insiders would choose delegates to go to the convention and wheel and deal on the convention floor. And kind of that whole model got blown up after 1968 because of how how contentious that convention was and how upset anti-war activists were about not having a bigger say in
0: the party. Us, uh, so I was surprised listening to your first episode of the Primaries uh, prod- podcast about uh, Connecticut's role in introducing this idea of proportional delegates. Uh, you interviewed Ben Goodman, who wrote about the changes to the nominating process. Uh, here's a clip.
2: You know, what a group of activists in Connecticut came together and did not only changed the way that we elect presidents, but changed how our national parties work and changed how our presidents govern and run the national parties when they're in office.
0: So, Galen, tell us more. What did these reformers do?
2: So, essentially, you had the anti-war activists backing Senator Eugene McCarthy. And, of course, you had the establishment backing Humphrey, who wasn't even really running in the primaries because he had establishment support so he didn't have to. Now, the anti-war activists who were backing Eugene McCarthy in Connecticut thought, you know, if we can get a bunch of delegates to the state convention, then we should be able to make the argument that the number of delegates who then go on to the National Democratic Convention should be in proportion to the number of delegates that we got to the state convention there in Connecticut—that was just not the way that things were done then. And so those Connecticut activists weren't granted their delegates proportionally. They basically walked out of the state convention and started a counter convention uh, across the way. And they also—they not—they didn't only do that. They started uh, a kind of commission that would argue for changing the rules of the Democratic Party more broadly to require a something of a proportional system, not exactly proportional, what the wording was more like, you know, the delegates to the National Convention have to fairly reflect the preferences of voters in that state. And so after the Connecticut Convention, they got other anti-war activists and McCarthy supporters from around the country on board to rewrite these rules, took those rules to the National Convention in Chicago. And even after Humphrey was actually awarded the nomination, which was a significant loss for the anti-war part of the Democratic Party, they got these rules changes through the convention floor, the delegates actually passed them. It's debated today whether or not the delegates to the National Convention actually understood the rules that they were even passing at the time, but it really amounted to, again, an overhaul of the way that the Democratic Party its nominee, chose its nominees, and then eventually the Republican Party followed suit.
0: So this really changed how uh, we saw primaries. It became more important. But when we think about how they were are ordered today, how did Iowa and New Hampshire become some of these early important primaries, Galen?
2: You know, it's basically an accident. Before <laughs> the system changed in 19... 19- Sixty-eight or post-1968, leading into 72 and then 76. The order really didn't matter because it wasn't a public process. Mm. And the, sorry, the delegates who were chosen at caucuses or through primaries were not necessarily required to vote for any one person on the convention floor. In fact, a lot of times the delegates were chosen before candidates for the presidency had even announced. And so there was no point in the media kind of following Contest by contest to see who was up or who was down over the course of primaries and caucuses, because it was the convention that actually mattered. But after the rules changed, particularly heading into 1972, then you could kind of tally state by state who was up and who was down because the delegates to the national convention had to fairly reflect, again, the voters' preferences in those states. Now The reason that Iowa ended up first is because after the rules changes, they said, you know, your contest has to be within a within the year of the election. So previously they were having caucuses, you know, more than a year in advance of the of the convention of the national convention. And Iowa has a complicated process. So in order to follow that new rule where it would happen within the year of the election, they had to go pretty early on. And so initially, it didn't seem like that would necessarily matter all that much. But what Jimmy Carter figured out in 1976, is that if you camp out in Iowa, and you do well in Iowa, then all of the media attention that comes with winning an early state Iowa will help propel you to do well in future contests. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, nobody really knew who Jimmy Carter was. He was the governor of Georgia at the time. But he was a non-entity in national Democratic politics. And then all of a sudden he does well in Iowa and goes on to win the Democratic nomination, although Democratic Party insiders basically, you know, had no relationship with him whatsoever. And, you know, New Hampshire is similar. Again, it was one of the early states to actually adopt primaries. You know, now we think of primaries as ubiquitous, but back in the 60s, again, only a dozen states had primaries. And so because New Hampshire was kind of a trailblazer in this, it was already going early. And then once it became clear how much power was associated with being an early state, the kind of party establishment within those states, both amongst Republicans and Democrats, have fought pretty hard to maintain that, uh, you know, powerful status of being an early state.
0: You're hearing Galen Drew, host and producer of 538's Politics Podcast. They have a new series out uh, over the next few months looking at uh, how the primaries uh, system came to be in our uh, country. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Galen, as we heard from New Hampshire Public Radio's uh, Josh Rogers, uh, a lot of attention uh, this cycle after Julian Castro uh, questioned the idea that Iowa goes first, especially when you look at how diverse the Democratic Party party is today. So what are some of the unintended consequences of this system that we have now?
2: Absolutely. So the first unintended consequence is that it privileges voters in early states. That was not the intention. When the rules were rewritten, it was not with the understanding that a certain set of states would go first that would have a great impact on how the rest of the states would end up voting. So That's obviously an unintended consequence and it's become an even more significant unintended consequence as the democratic party has grown increasingly diverse But states like iowa and new hampshire are really not diverse at all if you want An example of the kind of state that actually reflects the democratic party Illinois is actually the most kind of representative of the democratic party's demographics when it comes to the republican party iowa is pretty representative of the Republican Party's demographics, you know, it's quite white anyway. But then when you look at New Hampshire with regards to religious affiliation and things like that, New Hampshire is not particularly representative of the Republican Party either. So you now have a situation where neither parties are super well represented by the early states. And it's important to note that even though Nevada and South Carolina go this year third and fourth, they have a significant The reduced impact on, you know, how the rest of the states vote. Iowa is really kind of the major factor in in giving candidates a bounce early on. There are plenty of other unintended consequences. One, for example, is that there's no longer any ability, really, for delegates to wheel and deal on the convention floor and come to some kind of compromise you know, if there is a contested convention, it could happen, but there hasn't been a contested convention since these rules changes. And so what you end up having sometimes is a, a pretty fractured party that can be divided over candidates and and not have any clear way of, of making a decision or coming to a compromise. For example, you know, in, and this is, this is a bigger issue when you have a lot of people running in the race, like in 2016 Um, Donald Trump early on had about 30% support with 70% of Republican voters not interested in Donald Trump being the nominee, but the rest of the Republican voters were fractured amongst the different candidates. And so in this system, it's easier to win as a, as a factional candidate and kind of usurp, uh, the, the rest of the party. And, and go on to win. And in the old system, factional candidates were less frequent just because the whole party had to come to a consensus on the convention floor.
0: If we uh, think about reordering primaries to be similar to a state's Democratic electorate um, as to the party's nationwide voter base, uh, also criticism that that may uh keep uh, African-American, predominant African-American states who are also part of a key voting bloc in the Democratic Party um, from having a say uh, early on in the process, Galen? Um,
2: You know, it's true that, for example, South Carolina, which has a large number of African-American Democratic voters, is also not particularly representative of the Democratic Party. Right. And so it's it's kind of interesting that the Democratic Party does it in such a way where instead of having you know, three or four states that are representative of the party go first, which are states like Illinois or New Jersey, which are quite mixed states, Mm -hmm. um, it has a bunch of states that are not so representative of the party overall. Nevada, interestingly, is in the top five of most representative states of the Democratic Party. So if you do want a good sense of kind of what the Democratic Party wants, given its mix of demographics, maybe look more to Nevada than to Iowa or New Hampshire. You know, there's also an argument that we do, you know, one national primary day Mm -hmm. where everybody votes on the same day. And that comes with its own complications. And of course, small states like New Hampshire and Iowa have their arguments for why they think retail campaigning in a small state is important early on. But... I mean, the reality is there are lots of different ideas out there for how we could do this differently. They all come with their own complications and difficulties.
0: I think uh, another uh, approach that has been discussed uh, by some poli sci uh, political scientists uh, is looking at grouping states to produce these representative electorates across state lines. Uh, Maybe uh, would that be something that would maybe have a chance in moving forward, Galen? It's
2: difficult to know. So this is an interesting area of our democracy because it's not in the constitution. Parties are not in the constitution and how parties select their kind of candidates to run in general elections is not in the constitution. This has traditionally been up to parties and then parties have kind of written these rules a little bit more into stone through state law, but it's At the end of the day, parties are private organizations and they can structure this how they want. And so if activists within either party wanted to change the system, they could. But, you know, inertia is a powerful force in politics and and politicians and party activists are oftentimes small C conservative in the sense that they've been doing something this way for so long that it becomes difficult to kind of change things. Usually these kinds of systems are changed as a result of failure. 1968 was a big failure for the Democratic Party, which is when they chose to rewrite their rules. So perhaps if either party comes to the conclusion that the nominating system as it stands is disadvantaging them in the sense that they can't find candidates that can go on to win general elections or that they can't find candidates who are good at governing once they win those elections, then they could be open to changing the rules. And again, wouldn't take any kind of constitutional amendment. Really, it would be up to the parties and then to the state parties to enact any changes. You mentioned kind of grouping states. Mm -hmm. It's called a regional rotating primary. Uh, You know, that's another possibility that appeases people who say if we have one national primary day, it would put so much of an emphasis on national name recognition and money that, you know, smaller candidates who may have good governing experience may not be able to break through. Um, And so that's a possibility. The reason, one reason that people argue it should be rotating is so that it's not the same state every year. And you perhaps wouldn't every four years, I mean, and you would not perhaps even make it clear to candidates which state it would be until the first of the year or something like that. So that candidates only have you know, a few months to campaign in those states before they start voting, whereas now you have people heading to Iowa, basically, the day that the last president is elected to start their campaigns in in an unofficial way.
0: I mentioned this first episode of the Primaries uh, podcast. Uh, What are some other questions that you hope to answer in the next few months, Galen?
2: So we're looking essentially at how did the system get to be the way that it is today? And it's essentially the answer to that is it's an accident. You know, the Democratic Party, even when it rewrote the rules, didn't intend for the system to play out the way it has. The next question we're asking is, you know, what are the consequences of the system? There have been plenty of unintended consequences, and it's something that I think people have taken a, more of a look at in the wake of President Trump's victory within the Republican primary. It's hard to remember now, but. Uh, there was no party support for Donald Trump when he first got in the race. And it wasn't until like months after he started winning primary elections that he even got his first congressional endorsement. So we have a system where an outsider can really kind of take over the whole party from the outside. Uh, there are other unintended consequences as well. And then lastly, we're looking at how things could be different. So throughout the project, we talk to a lot of academics, political scientists, authors, researchers, and ask them, you know, if you could do things differently, how would you structure uh, the system? And there are a lot of ideas out there. Some of them we discussed. A common theme actually was give the party more control. Uh, Essentially, I I think that, you know, a lot of people would not be happy with this, uh, especially, you know, given the feeling that it would make the process, a lot of people have the feeling that it would make the process less democratic. Um, But but it's important to remember in all of this that the United States is the only country in the world, basically, uh, democracy in the world that does things the way that we do. In most other countries, democracies that we think of as highly functional, democracies that we look up up to, like Scandinavian democracies or Australia, et cetera, New Zealand, have systems where uh, the parties have a lot more control. Basically, it's up to the parties who they want to nominate and put forth uh, in a general election. And then the voters get to decide in a general election. And the argument for that is that parties are supposed to mean something. They're supposed to have a policy platform that is above candidate personality and things like that. Whereas in our system, we really do emphasize, you know, how well somebody does in front of the media cameras and, and that kind of thing.
0: Thanks for the breakdown. Galen Druk, host and producer of 538's politics podcast of so the latest series, The Primaries Project. Galen, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks a lot. Take care.
0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpethanchel. Coming up, we're going to shift focus to a high-profile murder case in Connecticut that's prompted advocates against domestic violence to call for new laws. More after the break, and you can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanschel. This programming note starting tonight, uh, Where We Live's evening repeat, will air at 8 p.m. And you can also listen to our episodes on your favorite podcast app. Also coming up tomorrow, one in four undergraduates are raising children. Are you one of these so-called non-traditional students? On the next Where We Live, we talk to student parents about the challenges of juggling college and kids. And how can policymakers and college officials better meet the needs of this student's population. We want to hear from you that show tomorrow. Now, we're shifting uh, focus uh, to a high-profile murder case uh, that's now drawing attention to Connecticut's family court system. Uh, Last week, uh, Fotis Doulos was arrested and charged with murder murder in connection to the disappearance of his estranged wife, Jennifer Farber-Doulos. She disappeared in the middle of divorce and child custody court proceedings that had been going on for two years. Now, a state lawmaker has proposed legislation to keep victims of domestic violence and their children safe – during these custody cases. I want to welcome to the show by phone State Senator Alex Bergstein, who represents Greenwich, New Canaan, and Stanford. Uh, Senator Bergstein, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks so much, Lucy.
0: So tell us about your child safety first bill. I believe it does call for changes to the family court system and the process. Uh, Tell us why you're honing in on that.
3: Yes. Well, this is just the first in a series of proposals that I will be making to address the issue of domestic violence and abuse. That that is pervasive, it it happens in every community in every state, uh, regardless of zip code. So what we have found and what the research shows is that there is actually uh, an institutionalized bias against women in family courts. When there was a, a major study published this past summer by Joan Meyer, who's a law professor at George Washington University, She analyzed over 4,000 custody cases, which showed that when there is abuse in a family, and even when there's child sexual abuse, the abuser is three times more likely to gain custody. So based on that shocking but uh, empirical evidence, we now know that we have a serious problem to address. So what my bill does is it elevates uh, abuse and violence. To be the first issue that courts have to address before looking at any other uh, factor in the best interests of the child.
0: Is this modeled after other legislation in other states or even federally?
3: Yes, in fact, um, in fact, the House uh, in 2018, September 2018, passed a non-binding resolution. It's called House Congressional Resolution 72, which had support from Republicans and Democrats that advised all states to, to do exactly this, to elevate child safety and issues of abuse and violence to be the first issue addressed in custody cases. So that's exactly what the first part of my bill does. It also expands, it also expands the definition of domestic violence abuse because we know that it's much more than physical violence. It can include all sorts of uh, coercive, controlling behaviors, including litigation abuse, which is appears to be exactly uh, what happened in the Julos case. Any case that has more than 100 motions uh, is really not about conflict between two parties. It's really more about uh, abuse by one party. Mm.
0: I wanted to bring another perspective into this conversation. Karen Jarmok joins us by phone, president and CEO of Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Uh, Karen, welcome back to where we live. Oh, thanks for having me. Could you tell me, um, listening to uh, State Senator Bergstein's proposal uh, to, to, again, uh, to change how family court proceedings uh, move forward related to uh, the safety of of victims and their families, what is your response uh, to some of her proposals?
4: I think her proposals are right on. I mean, we have viewed a challenge around uh, the experience of victims of domestic violence in the family court setting. Uh, for quite some time, and this is not an issue that is simply beholden to Connecticut. This is an ongoing challenge, and there have been various strategies that have been b- been employed over the years to try to address this issue. In particular, the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence um, is also introducing legislation uh, in response to uh, a convening that took place over the summer that Senator Bergstein was involved in uh, with Senator Flexer and Winfield, uh, and in particular this idea that in many states there is the existence of something called a bench book, uh, to, uh, serve as a guide, guidance, uh, to judges in particular around Uh, various complicated cases. We are proposing a statutory, uh, measure to, uh, create a task force so that it is transparent and the voices of survivors and, uh, and advocates are included in the development of this bench book, which would include, um, the identification of, um, a descriptor around litigation abuse and a statutory measure. Uh, and that the judges in Connecticut would need to utilize this bench book and be trained specifically on this bench book because we know that these are complex cases. Uh, and uh, I, I read in the Associated Press a comment by, by Judge Albus, uh, who leads in the family court in the state of Connecticut, yesterday around the extent of training that judges get. But um, if we are still seeing these challenges, then we need to do more and we need to do better.
0: When we think about uh, domestic violence victims uh, who may have the custody process used against them by their abusers, can you walk us through um, some of, uh, of what they're experiencing, Karen?
4: Well, we know that uh, abusive partners often uh, use the family court as their next mechanism. I mean, sometimes uh, people have this understanding when someone is going through a divorce or has left their partner um, and there are child custody matters that then the abuse starts. And quite honestly, it just uh, translates itself into the family court where the abusive partner uses the court to threaten, to harass, and to stalk their former partner. Uh, And we know that judges need to be doing more uh, to prevent that from happening.
0: Uh, State Senator Alex Bergstein, again, is also with us uh, by phone. Um, What is your response to uh, Karen Jarmock's proposal that more training needs to happen uh, within the court system so judges understand the many facets of domestic violence?
3: Yeah, I, I agree that judicial training has to be one component. And we have to be very careful about who is doing that training and what they are training them. To, to look for and to do. So, uh, you know, we can't let the fox into the hen house, so to speak. But, uh, but there but there's much more that uh, that we should be doing. And one other facet of this is um, protective orders, restraining orders. The bar, the legal bar to get a restraining order in Connecticut is much higher than it is in other states. Essentially, a woman has to prove that she has been uh, that she's been physically abused, and and as we said before, there are many other forms of abuse, including threats, intimidation, threats to take away the children or to harm the children, and all of those qualify for a uh, restraining order in other states, but apparently not in Connecticut. We also know that. Um, In Connecticut, many women who are being abused do not have legal representation. And when they do have legal representation, because a a pilot uh, program called the Gideon Project was done, their chances, just, just by having somebody, a lawyer, help them fill out the paperwork, their chances of getting a protective order, even when the facts are the same, increases by 50%. So I think that every victim is entitled to legal representation, and we need to provide that in order to protect women and children.
0: Uh, Karen Jarmok, again, President and CEO of Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Can can you add to that? That is surprising that you hear um, from what uh, Senator Bergstein is saying that so many of these uh, domestic violence victims don't have representation.
4: Sure. And just to clarify around restraining orders, so the bar for a restraining order in the state of Connecticut is either the existence of physical violence or the threat of physical violence. But I do agree with Senator Bergstein that any opportunity we have to strengthen uh, the occasion for victims to obtain that order is, is a good one. Uh, in terms of the Civil Gideon project, uh, that had um, actually some success this past fiscal year. Uh, the judicial branch put out a really subpar report on on that project, uh, and it's really deflated uh, what Senator Bergstein was saying. And, and we, I'm so glad that she's uh, pointing out uh, the factors that uh, statistically from research, we do know that my understanding is that when someone has a lawyer represent them at a hearing, uh, their chances of obtaining that order increase by 80%. Uh, Through the Victims of Crime Act, there are advocates in uh, the civil courts uh, funded through, uh, to be there to help with the restraining order process, but these are not attorneys. And so to the extent that there can be that form of representation that could be very powerful.
0: Uh, Karen, what are we seeing in the state of Connecticut uh, when we look at domestic violence cases? When we look at, unfortunately, uh, intimate uh, violence, uh, homicides—you uh, know—are the numbers uh, getting worse?
4: Well, well, it's been really uh, frustrating this year. Is that Jennifer Dulos is the fourteenth confirmed domestic violence homicide in the state of Connecticut for 2019? We are a state that averages 12 to 14. There's a tremendous amount of resources uh, that are offered uh, within various systems to make things uh, better so that we don't have these forms of statistics. And our organization, even though we do fatality review, domestic violence fatality review, uh, as a practice here, and report out every other year on this, um, is going to be looking at these uh, most recent numbers because uh, in the year previous, that was nine. Uh, And so, um, and it's not just about domestic violence homicide. We know that domestic violence shelter function at 121 percent capacity statewide all the time. Uh, That's a really uh, challenging number. We know that there is just simply not enough resources, uh, especially when Senator Bergstein was highlighting this factor around children. Uh, Each of the domestic violence 18 sites are funded less than $12,000 a year uh, to support children in these really uh, difficult circumstances, children who have experienced trauma. And so we'll be looking to see what we can do to strengthen that as well.
0: Uh, Senator Bergstein, uh, to that point about uh, these uh, domestic violence shelters, uh, obviously there's great demand, but not enough resources. Is that something that the legislature could take up this session?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. We should be looking at that. But I, I just want to mention that, you know, looking at the number of fatalities, is that's looking at the tip of the iceberg. I mean, nobody should ever, ever, ever lose their life um, that when when there were red flags, when they have told the court, I am in danger, um, and, and there was every indication given that uh, we needed to protect them. But there are also thousands and thousands of women and children who are living in abusive relationships, many of whom do not even have the resources or the support to leave. So, um, you know, we have to recognize that it takes really a form of superhuman strength for an abused woman to leave that relationship because the whole dynamic of an abusive relationship is one where she is being intimidated, dominated into submission. And all these various, uh, you know, behaviors like controlling her access to money, isolating her from other people so that she does not have support and does not have agency to actually leave, threatening to take her children away, threatening to harm her, her children. So when we, we also have to address the issue of all the women who are in those situations and how do we help them get out safely.
0: Mm. You know, there, it's a real tragedy uh, what happened to Jennifer Farber-Doulos, uh, but there's also the flip side that uh, there are many women um, who uh, come from many different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds that are also uh, victims of domestic violence, uh, but attention isn't always paid to them. How do we change that, Senator Bergstein?
3: well that 's exactly why I 'm talking about it in um, in global terms. this is not this is not just about justice for Jennifer. this is about justice for the thousands of women and children who have been killed by their abusers, but also for the many, many thousands more who are still living with abusers uh, because they don't have either the resources or the support to get out and even when they do. Summon that superhuman strength to leave. They often find that the courts do not believe them, and uh, and and in fact penalize them for telling their truth. So so we need we need um, to really shine a light on this issue. And there are many other uh, ways that we can help women in every economic uh, situation, including what uh, what Karen just identified: more support for. Uh, actual uh, services and shelters, and but really taking a close, hard look at the legal system and rooting out bias against women.
0: I'm Karen Jarmok, President and CEO of Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Uh, we have under a minute. Did you want to add to that point?
3: Yeah, sure.
4: So uh, Senator Bergstein, again, highlights you know, the circumstance where so we know in Connecticut, for example, there's nearly 40,000 victims, adults and children who seek help from domestic violence organizations in Connecticut. But they are also reaching out through various systems. So the question is, how do we strengthen all of our systems, whether it's when he- healthcare and law enforcement, the legal system, um, and other areas that we know that uh, families, uh, especially women who are, are victims of domestic violence, are struggling to get out of some very, very uh, precarious situations.
0: Well, I want to thank again, Karen Jarmok for joining us and State Senator Alex Bergstein, who represents Greenwich, New Canaan and Stanford. Uh, we'll keep, uh, please keep us posted on your legislation as it moves forward.
3: Thank I you. will. Thanks so
0: much. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our tentacle producer is Kyone Wolf. Learn more about the show. Just download where we live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Thanks for listening.